I find that people in other, you know, in the mental health industry don't think it's their job to get the person better. They actually don't think it's their job to get the person better. They say, you know, you have to do it for yourself, but I'm here to support you. What? I have to do it myself? Oh, yes, you have to do it yourself, but come here and do it so I can encourage you and tell you this is a safe place. Welcome to the Money, Mindset, and Manifestation Podcast. I'm your host, Marley Rose Harris, and I'm here to talk to you about all things entrepreneurial, personal growth, and self-development with a little side of spiritual woo-woo. I have successfully turned my side hustle into a multiple six-figure business while traveling the world and living a life I've only dreamed of. I hope by listening to this show inspires you to do the same and start manifesting everything on your vision board. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Money Mindset Manifestation Podcast. I'm so happy that you're here with me today, and we have such a special episode. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to personally invite you to my three-day podcast series event called Turning Passion into Profit. In this three-day event, it's going to be an audio podcast series where I am going to walk you through how to turn your passion into a profitable online business that gives you time, location, financial freedom. This is for you if you're feeling unfulfilled in your current career and you're ready to turn a passion, even if you don't know what that is yet, into a profitable business, you're struggling with overwhelm and taking steps towards building a successful business, you're frustrated with limiting money beliefs that are holding you back, you're craving this freedom-based lifestyle where you have the flexibility to work from anywhere in the world, and you're seeking support and guidance on how to get there. We're going to talk about mindset, we're going to talk about money mindset, we're going to talk about how to cultivate your passion, how to turn it into your full-time job. So this is for you if you don't even know what your passion is yet, And this is for you if you're already, you know, building a business. So I'm so excited to see you there. All you have to do is sign up with the link below and you will get access to this three-day event. It's going to be so much fun. I'm going to be actually giving away over $2,000 worth of giveaways. So it's going to be like this podcast, but even better. I can't wait to see you there. And we're going to have so much fun together. All right, back to this week's episode. So this week, I am interviewing John Connolly. Now, on the show, I am often talking about RRT. I'm getting certified in rapid resolution therapy, and I get so many questions. Marley, what is this? How does it work? You know, how has it helped you? What can I do with it? And I've also shared my experience with working with my RRT therapist and how transformation that transformational that has been for me. So I thought, why not? bring the freaking creator and inventor of RRT to the podcast to interview him, ask him all of the questions about the subconscious mind, healing, clearing trauma, and hear from him in his own words why he invented this, how did he get here, and why is RRT so different and so powerful, and how does it work so freaking well? So this was so special to me. You know, I love this podcast for so many reasons. It's like the thing that always gives back. I get to connect with beautiful people like yourself. And also I get to bring beautiful guests on and actually connect with them in a way that like, I don't know how I would have been able to have just a 
casual hour and a half conversation with someone like John Conley before. So I'm just so unbelievably grateful. And I enjoyed this conversation so much. I was laughing the entire time. And this is what it's like, you know, learning from John. On our Friday, like, training sessions, I literally can't stop laughing. The whole time, I'm just laughing, 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 having so much fun. He is such a light. He's such a beautiful soul. And I'm so grateful you guys are going to experience John. It was just magical. So we're going to break this into two parts because it was quite a long episode. And it was so much fun. So buckle in, take notes, enjoy. And if you guys have any questions about ROT, you can reach out to them. You can ask me. I'm currently getting certified in it and it's been the best thing I've ever done. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. And I'm so happy that you're here. Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Money Mindset Manifestation Podcast. We have a very special guest here today and I am so excited So as you guys know, and my listeners who've been listening in and tuning in have been asking me so many questions. Marley, what is RRT? Marley, what does it do? How can I get certified? Because you guys know I won't stop talking about it. So I thought, well, who better to bring to the show to discuss more about RRT, how it can help, and how it can transform your life with the owner and creator, John Connolly. So we are so happy to have you here today, John. Thank you so much for being here. So let's hop right in. And could you tell the listeners and myself, you know, how did this passion start for rapid resolution therapy? Thanks, Marley. It's lovely to be here with you. And thanks for the connection and making this happen. So I'm not sure where it started, but something is coming to mind to share with you. And that is that very soon after I opened a private practice and I had gone to a seminar on hypnosis, it was like a few days and it seemed like it might be useful. And people came in primarily because they wanted to stop smoking or lose weight. That's what hypnosis was associated with. And I'm brand new. I mean, I'm just figuring it out. A gal came in for an appointment and I figured she's certainly here to stop smoking because she didn't look a bit overweight. And I said, it's great to have you. What can we do for you? And she told me that she had been raped a few days ago and nobody had said anything about that. I said, well, what's going on with that? And she said, well, my mind, I can't access any information about it. She says, I can't tell you whether this guy that raped me was 70 years old or 17 years old. I don't know whether he was fat or thin. And the police are asking me these questions, and I don't know the answers. It makes me kind of feel like an idiot. But that wasn't the part of it that was most disturbing to her. The part that was most disturbing was that she couldn't ascertain her own safety. She couldn't look around a room and know he wasn't in it. Mm. And this fella had gotten her when she got off a train. It was in Long Island. And many people commute from the island into Manhattan for work. She was one of those on her way home, she got off the train 
was walking toward her car when she was abducted and and then raped. And just luckily uh, came to me like how to do this, because I, I really don't think I was prepared. I'm sure I wasn't prepared. I said, if we're going to do this, may I make a recording of it? It might be useful because you want information for the police and what have you. She said, absolutely, fine to give that to them. So I put a little, it was called a tape. It used to live in a tape recorder. You might have read about them in a history book. I put the tape in the tape recorder, pushed the button, and we did this thing, and it worked. Everything just flowed in just the best way. And later, I think it was that night or the next day, I got this phone call, and this fellow said, I'm detective so-and-so, and you did some kind of hypnotic thing with one of the rape victims? I'm investigating the case on. And I said, yes, sir. Being around people who are detective investigators was scary for me then. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> he says, you recorded that? <laughs> I said, yeah, yes. <laughs> I guess I wasn't supposed to, but I did. And he said, well, I want the recording. And I said, Absolutely. And he showed up. My gosh, he looked, I mean, he had a trench coat, had a wrinkled trench coat. This guy might as well have had a blue uniform on because nobody was going to think he was anything but a cop. He said, you know, give me that. And he took it. And that was it. And he calls me then the next day. And he says, I don't know what the hell happened here. And I said, what is it, detective? And he said, I had the absolute worst rape victim witness I've ever had. I mean, person gets raped and doesn't even know anything about who raped her. And she's freaked out all the time. He says, I have incredible detail now from your recording. Incredible detail, more detail than I get from anybody. And he said, and by the way, she seems calm and clear and fine. And I said, well... Thank goodness. So somehow I figured it out. He said, this guy keeps raping people. He said, will you help us? I said, oh, my goodness. Yes. So I'm just starting out. My office is now being filled up with sex crime unit people, police detectives, FBI agents, in and out, all these things bringing me more and more of this fella's victims, the newspapers called him the railroad rapist, because that's where he was doing that stuff. And what was concerning was this gal that I met first, emotionally, deeply traumatized Marley, but physically, I didn't see anything wrong. I mean, there might have been, but I mean, she wasn't bruised, her arms weren't broken. But as they began bringing me more and more people, this guy became more and more violent. I was scared that, well, you know, the next one is going to be dead rather than injured. I mean, people with their teeth knocked out, awful stuff. And they caught him. And there was a press conference. And this was a big deal because this is a serial rapist in Long Island. 
that's New York City newspapers, Long Island newspapers, big press conference. I even remember the name of the task force leader. I don't remember much, but his name was Detective Lieutenant Richard Dormer. And there is he's giving this good news to the members of the press. He starts talking about what I did and is saying, you know, we really are indebted to this young guy for all the help he gave us with this. And it made it possible to get him. And I thought, this is kind of a cool way to begin this whole thing. And I had a practice, like all at once. I remember a guy called me up and a few days after this thing, like three days after this thing, he said, hey, I'd like to make an appointment. And I'm thinking, so do you want to lose weight or stop smoking? You know, <laughs> he says, well, I'm, I just graduated from law school and I have to take the law boards. So that's why I want to see you. I said, well, I don't think you want to see me, dude. I don't know anything about the law boards. And he says, that's OK. I want to see you. And I said, well, why would you want to see me to go take the law boards? And he says, you're the guy who worked with those women, and they were able to remember all the details about being raped. And I said, yeah. He said, well, I want to remember what happened in law school when I go take the law boards. <laughs> and I said, oh, I wouldn't have made that connection, but come on in. And I learned from him that it had this other application. So I'm way away now from Stop smoking weight loss. We're doing criminal investigations and prepping people for law boards. Pretty soon, tons of people were coming in who had completed law school, and then they realized you have to take a law board and you might fail it. And man, if you fail the law board, you're right where you were before you went to law school, except a whole lot of debt and feeling miserable. So they came in, and that was a whole other application that I was excited and learned about. And I kept working with police with all different kinds of really interesting things. One was a detective came over at my home to talk to me. He said, I hope you can help me. And he was a homicide detective. And he told me that he was working on a case where a woman, the victim, was sitting in her living room with her children and got hit by a bullet that came in through the window, her living room window, and killed her. He says, I think I know who did this. And what he had done is he flew to another state where the ex-husband of this woman lived because he thought that guy did it. And the way he was trying to find out built his case was he was looking through like throwaway, a penny saver kind of newspaper advertising things and looking to find weapons for sale that would match the weapon that was used. And the time would be approximate because that's where the ex-husband lived. And this detective, he's like a total homebody. He doesn't like being away from home. And there he is at some cheap-ass motel, spending all day long straining to read fine print in throwaway newspapers, looking at classified ads, can you imagine, to try to find the gun. He found the gun. 
he found a person who sold the gun like that. He goes to the guy and he says, who do you sell the gun to? He said, I don't know. And he convinces the police department to fly me out to meet with the guy. And so that was like exciting. Now I'm in a homicide investigation. And I meet this guy and Marley, I crashed. Nothing. Zero. I mean, I did when every trick I know how to do. And this dude is, well, I, I don't know. You know, I don't feel anything other than I'm kind of getting a headache. Is that supposed to happen? Oh, Lord. And while that's going on, this detective who put this whole thing together is sitting like three feet away from me, looking at me, first with confusion, then with anger, then with disgust, then with hatred, because he had to do all this stuff to finally get done so he doesn't have to sit in the room reading the freaking penny savers any longer, uh, wrap up this case, and he had to really do a bunch of convincing to get them to fly me over to do this thing, strike out, and he's driving me back to the airport, kind of like an angry teenager. I mean, this guy is like doing things, scaring the heck out of me, driving, and I mean, he's just bad, bad day, and I'm going to bear the brunt of that. And I said to him, but it's a fellow married. He said, yes, so what? I said, well, if he's married, I, I think I'd like to meet his wife. And he said to me, oh, well, his wife didn't sell the freaking gun. And I said, dude, I went on a plane to get here. I don't have to get home right away. I want to meet his wife. He makes a U-turn, like, whoa! Uh, next thing, we're there. And that one, for some reason, worked. Like, it blew me away. I said, hey, would you? Well, I, I, I don't know much about it. I don't like guns. I wasn't involved. Uh, well, would you mind if we did some stuff to try to bring this out of your memory, if you know anything? Well, of course. It took, like, two minutes. She's describing, well... The car pulled up in front, and it was an MGB, and it was green, and looked like this, and looked like that, and the guy got out, and he's about this tall, and he's wearing this kind of hat, and this jacket, and these pants, and these shoes, and he walked up to the door, and he began speaking, and he said these words, and he had this kind of accent, and this detective has now fallen in love with me. <laughs> uh, he, he hated my guts a few minutes ago. But now he's just like his mouth is open and he's nodding his head and grinning. And I'm feeling like, okay, things are good with the world. And I said, this is never, this will not work. This will not work. I think I even said to the detective, this is not going to work. I'm just messing around. And then I said to her, just do me a favor and look out at that car again and just read off the numbers on the license plate, if you would. <laughs> no way. It's the guy. Wow. Yeah. And so they got him. I testified in this homicide trial. Scariest stuff for me then. But, well, he went to jail. He murdered his wife. And the other guy went to jail. The railroad rapist guy went to jail. You know. Not very long ago, I just started remembering that stuff. And I thought, I wonder what happened to that dude. And I looked it up. 
because I was contacted by a local police department. They wanted to know, would I do this kind of thing for them near where I am now? And so that made me remember. And I looked up this thing and I found out that guy, the railroad rapist guy, I think he got out after eight, 10 years in prison. He got out. The bad news was that he got involved with another woman and beat her to death. And so they put him back in where I think he, he's going to stay this time. But that asked me to kind of think of sort of some of the beginning stuff. That was a rather dramatic thing in the beginning. And I was got really friendly with all these detectives and particularly people on the uh, sex crime unit because they recognized that I could do two things. There were mostly women. They were all women. All the sex crime detectives then were women. And they liked it that I got really useful information, but they also liked it that people who saw me were calmed and at ease afterwards. And so I began doing quite a bit of that. So that's an awfully long answer to a short question, but it's fun to reminisce with you. I loved every minute and I hadn't heard those stories before. So I was right on the edge of my seat with you. Are you wanting to start, grow, or scale an online business, but you're lacking accountability, you're lacking a blueprint, you're lacking community, and you honestly just don't know what to do next? This is exactly how I felt when I started my online business. I felt alone and I felt very overwhelmed. But over the past four years, I personally have built two online businesses that have generated over seven figures in income. I've put together the exact method and strategies that work so you don't have to stroke anymore and you can get the results faster and quicker. I want to tell you about Freedom Club. It's my 12-week business accelerator that blends mindset and strategy so you can start seeing success externally and feeling it internally. By enrolling in Freedom Club, you can start to expect that people are going to be reaching out to you saying, oh my gosh, your business is looking so amazing. I'm so impressed with you. You will start to have the financial freedom to spoil your friends, your family, and most importantly, you. If you want to join a supportive, uplifting community and start taking the step in the right direction toward building your business so you can finally be financially free and live life on your own terms, apply in the link in the show notes and we can hop on a call to ensure it's the perfect fit for you and creating the future and life that you dream of. All right, back to the episode. How did you cultivate your RRT method? I call myself self-care guinea pig. I try all the therapists. I try all the healing things. I've never quite experienced something like RRT because it's instant and it's forever. It almost sounds too good to be true. And when you're teaching us these methods, it's like nothing I've ever learned before. And, And like you say, which is I'm not teaching you something new. I'm teaching something that you already know, but in a different way. So how did you cultivate this new way of learning? Because from your story, it sounds like you started in a very clinical method, you know, social worker, hypnotherapist. How did you kind of veer off and create this own method, which is very different from what's happening today and is way more effective? Oh, I so appreciate you saying that. I went through graduate training to do psychotherapy. One of the things that's interesting about that 
and I asked, then as I began training, I started kind of researching this. I would ask people in my training that was filled with mental health professionals, psychologists, social workers, counselors, marriage and family therapists, mental health counselors, that group of people. And I would ask in the beginning of the class, I would say, during your schooling, which fulfilled the requirements for you to take the licensing exam and become a licensed counselor or whatever, how much time was spent watching your teachers do what they were teaching you how to do? How often did you watch them work with people and create good results? And I don't know whether it'll surprise you, but the answer that was by far the highest number of people would answer was always zero. So they never showed you how to do this, not even once? No. Well, but you were learning to do it, so at least they watched you, right, to make sure you were doing it. They didn't show you, but they had to see what you were doing, right? No. So you never saw anybody do this? No. Nobody ever saw you do it? No. And you're licensed to do it? Yes. At the highest level. Licensed with a PsyD, a PhD in clinical psychology, or a doctorate in, in clinical social work, or what have you. Never have they seen what? this thing happen. Like, how is that? Why? <laughs> Do you know why? Because Yes. Well, I I suspect the reason they didn't teach people how to do it is because they don't know how. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. But, but it's hidden behind this veil of respecting confidentiality, which I could relabel as protecting ineptitude, because you can go into a courtroom and watch a trial just because you have free time. You can sit there and watch trials if you like to spend time doing that. But you can't go in and watch family court trials where it involves children. Why not? It's because we want to protect the children from people who are gawking, watching them have to deal with, you know, whatever matter they're dealing with. So that sounds like a good thing. We, we're protecting these children. but. From my time, well, I didn't mention that prior to all this, I'd spent a number of years as a what was called a child protective service worker. So I was in and out of family court looking to do things to protect kids that were being abused and what have you. And it's private, you know, so there's nobody watching. What I could tell you from my experience with nobody watching is the amount of ineptitude, which was both just no skill, but on top of that, no real interest, was phenomenal. It couldn't possibly have existed with open courtrooms. People would have said, well, what are you doing here? But it was existing and was terrible for children that are supposedly trying to be protected, but not just the courtroom, everything that led up to it, the whole child protective service industry I finally came to realize this designed to create the illusion that children are being protected 
because we sure as hell weren't actually protecting them. And no way could we, because you give people way too many cases. First, you got to hint and hire people that don't know what the hell they're doing. So I had a degree in history. That's what qualifies me to go into people's homes and deal with family therapy group, diagnosing the family intervention with people that don't even like you or want you. They're dealing with the interface of the legal system. I did that with a degree in history because I could pass a civil service test. Don't be concerned. My supervisor had an advanced degree and I could always go to her. You know, she was trained in art history. Um, (laughs) So... And her supervisor was sleeping with her. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what else was going on. But um, <laughs> I mean, I was really exposed to horrible things, scared the hell out of me to be doing this stuff. I mean, it was really scary, scary, weird stuff. I was in a in a ghetto. I'm knocking on doors. Um, hey. Good to meet you. You know, I'm here because somebody was suggesting you're kind of messing around with your teenage daughters. Um, You know what I mean? And I just thought maybe we could have a little heart to heart on that. And I'd like to spend a little quality time alone with her, maybe her room or the backyard, your choice. So we can kind of, you know, get to the bottom of this and get things scared the hell out of me doing it. But I did it for a number of years. I went from that to a residential program for runaway throwaway kids. So with both of those things, I was deeply exposed to people who had been traumatized every which way, Morally. And so you asked about the beginning, and well, that gave me some motivation. I would like to do something about it because nothing I was involved with in a position to prevent it I don't think it's even being dealt with well. I go to school. They never teach you one thing about how to do anything. Then I finally went to a postgraduate program where they said, well, the problem is that the feelings that people have when they're being like raped and stuff are not expressed enough. You know, people are busy, kind of like making sure you're not dead. So you're not trying to get in touch with your feelings a lot and express them while getting raped or mugged or abused or whatever. And so the solution that they suggested was that we needed to cause people to get the feelings that are stuck in them out of them. And so, I mean, I learned to do that. Padded rooms, soundproof, padded room, tons of Kleenex, bucket to vomit. And how do you get her back to re-experiencing the worst moment of her life so that we can squeeze the rest of the pain out? By the way, if you want to do that, smell works well. You can kind of like look for what was the scent you were experiencing as you were getting raped. Because if we can clue on in that, we can get it to be re-experienced again. It's sobbing, pounding, banging, screaming, vomiting. And I hated that. But I thought, well, you know, I should have to do this. I didn't protect all these children. I didn't do it. I don't know what's going on. I just felt terribly guilty because I wasn't useful. And I kept seeing the horror mount, but not the solution. And so I tried doing that and I did it until I just got, you know, 
if it's terribly painful for the person I'm doing it to and terribly painful to me, I'll do it anyway as long as people get better. They didn't. So I said, I'm out of here with this thing. <laughs> and I left that. And so basically everything that I had learned about any of this didn't really make so much sense. And that's where I started figuring some stuff out on my own. I did go through trainings that did seem interesting to me. I did a bunch of training in rational emotive therapy. I got to meet the late, great Dr. Albert Ellis. I did some training in neuro-linguistic programming and got to spend some time with both of the founders, Dr. Grinder and Diltz, well, Bobby Diltz. Uh, I did some training in reality therapy. I just did a bunch of things. Some of those did have some use, thank goodness, but they don't teach you any of that in graduate school. So most of the people out there in practice have not been going on for that because you can be licensed without that. And those were useful, but they were influential. They were lovely. I appreciate them. And yet this thing I developed, I think, is different. And people who have had a lot of training in those things don't seem to think what I'm doing is that stuff. It's just other stuff that I created along the way. I would find that that with a particular problem, things would come to mind to perhaps try or new ways to think about things. Um, and that's where this thing we call rapid resolution therapy came from. And what I'm looking for is to create, you know, I used to think it would be great to end suffering in the world. It, I have to narrow to be useful. So I'm looking to at least end the suffering that people that are inflicted on people who are going into treatment to deal with their suffering. So I can make a difference there. This is unbelievable. But I found often I'd meet with somebody maybe was abused as a child, sexually abused, raped, whatever, as a kid. And then as I'm listening to what's causing that person to still be traumatized, most of the real trauma wasn't from the abuse. It was from the treatment. Wow. Yeah. And so there's got to be another way. And that's what I started figuring out. So I just kind of did the opposite of everything I was taught and thought of things in just a very different way. And well, I guess the beginning was the whole thing, because all of those different things went together to cause me to be thinking about things in the way that I ended up thinking. And now that I'm lucky enough to have an opportunity to teach wonderful people like yourself. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Hey, hey, hey. Before you go, would you love a free money hypnosis? You guys, this is what I listen to every single night to rewire my subconscious mind so I can manifest the money that I desire. It is absolutely game changing if you've heard me talk anything about subconscious mind and anything along the realms of healing your subconscious mind to help align you and attract money into your life, hypnotherapy is the way. It actually heals and rewires your subconscious mind to make it believe and 
truly allow it to believe that you deserve the money that you desire. So if you want this free money hypnosis, all you have to do is leave us a review, you know, honest review, how you're feeling about the show, take a screenshot right away and then send it to hello at marleyrose.ca and we will send you this free hypnosis. You guys, it's going to be absolutely game-changing. It's how all my clients have manifested all of their massive goals in their business and in their life. Okay, thanks so much, you guys. I hope it's a great tool for you to use in manifesting all the money that you desire. Lots of love. Mwah.